1: How successful you are as an entrepreneur
0: is in your ability to make high quality decisions This episode is very exciting, at least for me, because this is a conversation between me and Daniel Eck, who is the co-founder and CEO of Spotify. And we're here because of an exciting new announcement that they've just unveiled at an event last night, and that is all about audiobooks. So basically, audiobooks are now coming to Spotify. In this conversation, me and my new pal Daniel talk about a bunch of interesting things. Firstly, we talk about what this audiobooks feature means for the industry at large and how it's going to affect publishers and authors and, of course, readers and listeners. Secondly, we talk about Daniel's approach to building businesses. And Daniel talks about the frameworks that entrepreneurs can use to think about how they add value. And we talk about the balance between thinking and action. And Daniel shares some interesting and somewhat counterintuitive thoughts on what most entrepreneurs do wrong.
1: I'm interested in solving, like many other entrepreneurs, big problems for people. I'm not so interested in creating you know, a gimmicky thing that people may find some amusement in, but next week move on to something else. I would look for a problem where it pays off to be faster.
0: And we talk about time management, we talk about focus, and we talk about work-life balance as it relates to the fact that Daniel's obviously running this huge company and a couple of other companies as well, and is also balancing his life as a father and a husband.
1: I do what I love to do. So I have a lot of fun while doing it. I don't live to work, but I really enjoy what I do too. So it doesn't feel like a huge drag. You shoot for the stars and you land on the moon. You might just as well tackle something that's really hard because if you tackle something that's really hard, it's more likely that you create a lot of value than if you tackle something that's simple,
0: Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you Thanks so much for having us here. This is an exciting time for you guys.
1: Yeah, uh, well, thank
0: you so much for coming uh, here to New York. Uh, I feel honored. Yeah, mate. First time in New York. Like it was, it was incredible that you guys invited us out here. Um, so, you guys have recently announced the audiobooks thing. For people who might not have heard of what this is, can you can you give us a rundown of what does this mean for listeners?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so so the basics of what we announced is starting yesterday, um, um, audiobooks, uh, well actually all Spotify premium users in UK and Australia now have audiobooks as part of their package. So they get 15 hours uh, worth of listening as part of their uh, subscription from a library of more than 150,000 titles to choose from. So you, you'll have an amazing set of of. Of uh, titles that you'll be able to listen to as part of your Spotify premium subscription, and then in addition to that, you can obviously top up for more hours if you like it, or purchase books on an a la carte basis, just like you could before.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be incredible. Like I've I've just got access to it on my Spotify app because obviously it's UK based. Yeah, and just the the speed at which I can now sample audiobooks yep. is great because I don't need to worry about like a credit system where it's like exactly a limited right. number of things per month and all that kind of stuff
1: yeah exactly right and and um i i think what's going to happen is um like you said people are going to now take the bet on authors that they might have not otherwise done just because they're curious and interested uh and a big problem with the previous credit model was you kind of had one shot and so you're more likely to take the things you know you like um and and do that rather than bet on anything new so the thing that probably excites me the most is just going to be seeing how consumption is going to be different and what kind of authors might do well in this world Uh, and inversely also there may be some authors that
0: don't do as well uh, as they normally would Mm. so breaking into audiobooks like it's a pretty old school system legacy providers very like publishing the publishing industry in general is quite like entrenched with like the big five publishers how did you guys go about kind of becoming an entrant to this market and I guess becoming the first viable competitor to Audible.
1: Yeah, well, I I, I think... Um, Our DNA is a little bit different in that um, we started out respecting copyright and working with partners. Uh, There's a lot of tech companies that tend to take the approach build a platform and then whatever comes, comes. And then eventually you get to a certain size where you kind of need to codify it and start adapting to the existing industries. We kind of take this approach, uh, the inverse approach, where We don't mind going into something where you may even have a few big players, you work within the system to try to change it. So, um, you know, a lot of people talk about disruption. I I dislike the word because it typically kind of implies that you're wreaking havoc on what's already there. And just like we did in music, we actually like working with the ecosystem, try to see if there's a win-win outcome where creators win and consumers win at the same time. So I think we took the same mindset that we had in music um, beforehand and applied it to audiobooks and said, we understand your problems. And we spent the better part of two years just trying to understand what their issues were fundamentally before we introduced a model. And the big realization was like, just like in music, Uh, There was one dominating player uh, that was there before and it was kind of stagnant in the innovation. And just like in music, uh, it was actually quite small number of people that were in this legal environment from where we thought uh, the world should look like. Uh, If I look at Germany as a great example, you know, in Germany, um, the book market is about half audiobooks and half uh, physical books Mm -hmm. and the same has now happened in Sweden. Um so if you think about that um you know i think the number right now is about 5% in the US and probably i would guess I'd, i don't know the numbers but probably a similar 5-10% in the UK so that means that audiobooks is massively underpenetrated uh and we need to bring innovation in order to do so so by making this part of all spotify members we bring two things uh, to bear. One is we bring scale straight away, which makes this exciting for publishers. And two, you uh, are introducing a whole new generation that perhaps may not have purchased a separate audiobook subscription, but now that this is part of their existing uh, audio service already, they get both better consumption experience and uh, are more likely to try new things as well.
0: Sick, yeah, I can't can't wait to try this out and just sample tons and tons of audiobooks. a general question about, you know, when, when it comes to business entrepreneurship, obviously Spotify has been quite, you know, to use that word disruptive uh, when it comes to, for example, the music industry. But there are a lot of businesses that, you know, if, if someone had the idea of, you know, even something like Stripe, where it's like, hey, let's do payments or something like that. Mm. And you and then they think oh, there's going to involve a lot of deal making, a lot of talking to people, a mm. lot of trying to convince yep. existing providers that this is a good idea. Compared to doing something that doesn't require any of that. Yeah. You know, music, audiobooks, payments, these are all like hard problems because you're having to do a lot beyond just whip up a few bits of code, which sure. is, I guess, how a lot of people think of software startups. Yeah. If you were advising new entrepreneurs who are looking at opportunities that seem hard versus opportunities that seem less hard, yeah. how, how would you go about kind of tackling that.
1: Well, so, so I think that there's two things that are important to state. Whether you only have to do um, a little bit of code or whether you have to do a lot of work, the first thing is to try to understand how do you create value and for whom. Um, and so in a lot of cases, what I notice is that uh, if it is very easy to go about something, um, it is easy to try ideas. That's the positive thing. So occasionally you may uh, stumble upon th- something that becomes a great success. But I think we don't talk about the inverse um, enough, which is because it's cheap, you tend to not have to think th- things through, and so many of these experiments then a- end up getting faulty. And um, you know, we talk about minimum viable project uh, products, MVPs, and so on. I actually don't subscribe to the theory at all. I'm, I'm kind of um, opposed to minimal viable products. Um, Instead, I think you should take the time to think through uh, what problems you're solving and for whom. And I think the first experiments actually dictate subsequent experiments as well. So uh, I I would just say the first thing is to try to like really, no matter who you are, and whether it's a big effort or small effort, uh, you're gonna have to think through the problem well. And that in itself is a big exercise, no matter if, if the actual implementation then is fast or slow. And then the second thing is, um, you know, what, when I think about all the problems that are left, um, I think about the worlds and, and bits, atoms, and genes, right? And so um, we started, all of us as internet entrepreneurs, we were solving mostly bits-only problems. But when you think about the really interesting things that are happening at the moment, they're all kind of in this interplay between bits and atoms and in some cases maybe bits and genes uh, with uh, you know the recursion pharmaceutical company and a bunch of all these other companies that do really interesting stuff in in biotech so I, I think that the most interesting opportunities are in those things that are kind of problematic anyway where you have to master many skills and then the last thing i would say, just say is the the you know you shoot for your for the stars and you land on the moon i i tend to think that it's it, things in the end usually back to my first point ends up being about the same amount of work anyway so you might just as well tackle something that's really hard because if you tackle something that's really hard it's more likely that you create a lot of value than if you tackle something that's simple so maybe that's me post-rationalizing getting into really difficult uh, businesses and, and, and so on but um, I'm interested in solving, like many other entrepreneurs, big problems for people. I'm not so interested in creating, you know, a gimmicky thing that people may find some amusement in, but next week move on to something else.
0: Mm. So, let's say someone's listening to this and they're a, you know, they've they've got a normal job and they want to start a business initially on the side, you know, and try and try and build it up into a thing. And they might be thinking of like, okay, there's this hard problem I want to tackle, but. You know, Daniel's got his team of ten thousand plus employees, and he's got all the money and all that kind of stuff. What are some uh, What are some ways that that solo entrepreneur can start thinking about tackling these hard problems?
1: Well, I mean, again, if you are starting to go up against a big incumbent uh, in whatever field you're doing, um, I think the most um, underappreciated things is um, is, is to, to almost think about, you know, there's informational advantages you can have, right? There's analytical advantages you can have, and then there are behavioral advantages you can have. And I like to go after things that, where you can have be- behavioral advantages. So I would look for a problem that, where you, where where it pays off to be faster. And like in a bigger company, and one of the things as said, by example is that you can't take the same amount of risks on the regulatory side or the legal side, but very often things that are highly disruptive, for instance, tend to be things that are kind of in that gray zone where it's not super, I'm not saying it's, it's illegal, but it's not clear if it's super legal either. So you have an advantage um, as a younger company to go up against an incumbent in there. So I would just go for things where you can have some sort of behavioral advantage, where it pays off to be faster, where it pays off to be a smaller team, et cetera. But then in addition to that, the true unique thing I really do believe is if you're a high quality individual, even if you have a job on your side in order to um, you know pay the rent and all the the other stuff, if you are spending thousands of hours thinking about a problem that is highly unique in this world. There aren't a lot of high quality people spending thousands of hours thinking about how to solve a certain problem. You're very likely to come up with very unique solutions. And that sort of touches upon the conversation we had prior, right, about um, sort of, you know, how to think uh, about these things, the minimum viable thing. I think most of the work happens to be the same, no matter if it's a hard problem you're tackling or a simple one, which is really thinking things through. Um, You know, thinking is uh, cheap. That's the real MVP part here.
0: Mm. What do you mean by informational or analytical advantages?
1: Well, I think in the world, like, again, um, if you're a big um, company, the the reality is, let's take Spotify as a great example. We have an audience of more than 550 million users. We're naturally going to have an informational advantage around consumption behaviors, relative to a new entrant. So naturally, that gives us a lot of, of opportunities. Uh, like one way we're using it in the case of audiobooks is we're looking for, uh, is your music taste um, a possible indicator of what kind of books you may like? Um, you know, I don't know if it is, but maybe it is. Uh, if so, then we would have um, certainly an advantage, a relative to someone who's starting uh, fresh in in audiobooks so that would be an example of that an analytical advantage would be for some reason you happen to sit on the 50 experts in the world um, about this particular issue every phd you kind of bought up and have them locked up in in a locker then you may have some sort of analytical advantage there's a much harder to kind of like um, understand. But investors typically talk about having sort of an informational advantage or an analytical advantage. But I think the most underutilized and underappreciated of them is when you can have a behavioral advantage. You can just behave in ways that other people can't or don't want to. And how did that,
0: The I guess in the early days of Spotify, you guys took a very different behavioral approach compared to what other people were doing. What What did that look like back in the day?
1: Um, Well, I I think um, back then um, it it manifested manifested itself in many ways, and and I guess it also depends relative to other people. But one of the behavioral things we were, we were a Silicon Valley type company out of Stockholm, Sweden. so relative to other European companies, we were way more Silicon Valley playbooks of, of you know scaling things, moving fast technology, being an enabler for various things. So against them, we did a lot of things uh, very right. Um, against a Silicon Valley company, we were a European company. And that had certain other advantages. Uh, for instance, the talent market uh, didn't look the same Uh, in there so we could have our pick of the talent so the best of the best of the best because there wasn't many other startups around when we started out uh, which was an enormous advantage another thing too was that our first initial market was not the US it was Sweden and uh, I can tell you that if we had started in the US as the first market Spotify would not be around today but because by picking a much smaller market that everyone else thought was uninteresting. We were not only because we were there on the ground, we were able to see the signals, but it also didn't matter uh, to the same extent. And the first couple of iterations of what we were building probably wouldn't have been impossible to take in the biggest markets in the world and get in the record labels to buy in and say, hey, we're going to risk everything. And by the way, this guy comes around, a 23-year-old guy, and he's telling us to give away our music for free because then people will want to pay for it, Mm. right? Of course, they didn't want to do that. Uh, So I probably would have then had to settle for a much worse product and proposition, whereas in Sweden, um, the market was small enough and I was able to convince them but also promise them through guaranteeing them revenues um, uh, for that market. So for them, it was kind of win. If Spotify loses, we still get another year's so run rate. If Spotify wins, um, this might be quite interesting. So, mm-hmm. so it really wasn't as big of a bet. But if I tell you from the beginning, if I come to you and say, hey, Ali, give me all your content for free, and by giving it away for free, we're going to get people to pay for it. But we won't tell you how. how. And by by the way, this is back in 2008. Yeah. So now people are more aware of it. And no one was paying for anything on the internet back then. Yeah, You probably would have laughed me out of the, the house. But because I did that, coupled with also basically saying, here's another year's um, uh, pay where you, you saw your existing business crumbling from underneath you it's like yeah. ooh, okay I'll, I'll try this I don't believe it works but at least it gives me a few more months of runway
0: nice um one thing that we we, we touched upon is this sort of um you said uh you know th- thousands of hours of thinking uh, thinking is the thing that can can give you the advantage how, how do you think of you know there are there are a lot of people that I know that we have in our audience who are almost paralyzed by thinking about things. They'll mm. think about starting a YouTube channel for ages, or mm. well, they think about starting a podcast or writing a book yeah. for absolutely ages, and they'll yeah. never take action. Yeah. So, how do you think about this balance between the analysis and the thinking versus actually just doing the thing?
1: Yeah, and 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 you're exactly right too. So, what I often tell entrepreneurs is that um, you know, if you even start something, you're better than ninety nine percent other people, right? So. Um, you know, and the, this is why I don't like giving advice because people tend to take you literally, but whereas the reality is it's the sum of many different things that you have to do. But you're you're exactly right. I do think you have to get started uh, and you have to do stuff. And, and it's by being half pregnant that you kind of, like the, the amount of times that I wanted to quit Spotify, but I couldn't because I felt like um, I was half pregnant. I had a team, they weren't dependent on me and I just had to power through. And it's by just pure grit that eventually we were able to overcome certain things. So, so I think that is equally true. In addition to that, but I would say, um, I generally think when I meet entrepreneurs, that they've underthought um, uh, the space, the solution, uh, what value they're creating for who, and if they spent a little bit more time than that, they would have avoided some other problems that then gets very painful. By learning it after the hand, so it's it's a combination. You have to get started, like you said, and I think that's the problem for ninety nine percent. I still, to be candid, I'm 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 thinking of this out loud now, but I'm not sure if that is a good thing or bad thing for for humanity. Maybe it is by default, so that it, it is good that there's a certain barrier for us all to start things um, in the beginning. Um, but you're right. It's true with exercise. It's true with most things um, as well. Getting started is the hardest part.
0: Yeah, I think early on in my, I guess, entrepreneur career, I very much drank the Kool-Aid of like, just get started, just do the thing. And now that I look back on it, I think it that attitude served me in some parts of the journey, but it hamstrung me in other parts of the journey. Actually, this morning we started our first um like you know we've got a team of 13 people so every week we've started a thing where 9 a.m on a wednesday morning one hour everyone's on zoom slack is off everyone has a pen and paper and notebook and just thinks about Mm. their area of the business Mm. and that already for me for everyone on the team has already led to so many insights because just even just taking that one hour a week to just think yeah nothing else is so rare in a world where there's constantly stuff to do
1: yeah no i think you're right like this constant interruption um is a real issue and psychologically um, we're we're ill-equipped to deal with it, so I think uh, that's certainly true. By the way, the, the, one of my board members posted something you might be interested in, I think it was yesterday, he talked about single-threaded meet- meetings versus multi-threaded meetings. So the basic gist was that uh, most of us tend to think that there's kind of one type of meeting we end up having, which is kind of we all go around the circle, we talk about things and it's one topic and so on. And so he has some interesting ideas that he's observed from especially remote companies and two where they're able to have, um, one of them he did, uh, he was at YouTube uh, uh, before and he called it the bullpen meeting. So basically like you bring everyone together and you slot kind of like you do uh, for one or two hours um it just happens to be everyone can talk about it whatever but because it's not scheduled that leads to totally different types of interactions so that was his thing but he then lists a bunch of other companies and what they're doing in order to have more productive meetings so i would highly recommend you to reading that too. oh nice
0: yeah i will check it out um one thing i wanted to talk about before we talk about creator economy stuff you, you mentioned you know the phrase high quality entrepreneurs and you mentioned that you know at spotify you're trying to i guess like everyone is hire, hire the best of the best i wonder what are the traits you've seen that are common amongst the highest performers, the, the sort of the, the best people that you work with, the people that you think, oh, I would love to clone this person a hundred times. Yeah. What do or what are their like behavioral traits?
1: The, 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 uh, honestly, the single um, biggest indicator uh, is their ability to learn. Um, I don't think it's about skill uh, or knowledge, because if you're solving problems, you're going to end up inevitably getting into situations where you end up not knowing everything. So yes, it, initially, uh, if you have a lot of uh, expertise about a certain domain, it does help because you can avoid running into all sorts of problems, etc. cetera. But, but certainly when you're solving problems, um, and I think that's the most important thing for any entrepreneur or executive to try to do, it's the quality of decision-making. You're gonna be forced um, by meeting lots of, of um, different things that you don't know anything about or you know very little about it. And so then it's really your ability to learn over a short period of time and how you learn. And so what I oftentimes try to do is I try to observe how people learn and their innate ability to learn and, and that then comes into curiosity. How curious are they? Uh, what patterns today? So I'm interested in novel ways that people accumulate information. If they find like this kind of hidden path somewhere on this subreddit thread that like, I don't even know how they got there. That's interesting. Uh, if if it turns out that they're excellent in extracting information from other human beings that don't normally like to share their secrets, but everyone feels very comfortable around them. That's also could be another skill. There are many ways to do so. But um, the curiosity... Of learning and the ability to learn over short periods of time I think is the the um, biggest indicator of what eventually will be a high quality entrepreneur. so you have to do something that you're innately curious about uh, and you're passionate about right because otherwise you wouldn't have pursued it Um, so I think that's the fallacy one people look at people like myself and say oh that's gonna be great So I think it's like very important to pick things you're passionate about and curious about, but then ultimately how successful you are as an entrepreneur Um, is in your ability to make high-quality decisions. But how are you supposed to make high-quality decisions about things you know nothing about? In my case, learning the intricacies of copyright law and making decisions around there. Or how do you hire a great CFO if you've never seen one? How do you hire a great CFO for a publicly traded company? That's like a totally different challenge than the first person who keeps your books around and pays the bill. Um, and the bar keeps going up and there are new and new and new challenges constantly. And you can't, it is impossible to have experience in all these things. Uh, mm-hmm. Hence, your ability to learn over a short period of time, I think, is the uh, highest indicator of success.
0: Nice. Do you have a like an executive coach or anything like that? Um,
1: I do. Um, but to be honest, I, I work with various people in various parts of my journey, so I'm not one who's had like one mentor and that person's stuck around with me. I tend to work with people, uh, again, uh, that I find like um, has a corner of things um, where I may not have much experience uh, prior um, and I'm able to pick up a lot of things because that person has that. So, so um, I, I tend to look for um, thinkers who are in a very, probably quite far field from myself mm. uh, and and then i tend to work with them for a while i don't um it might be a year it might be a two-year two stint then for a while i don't work with anyone and then i find a new one yeah. uh, that i can learn from and try to um you know surround myself with people who are thinking very differently than what i do
0: uh changing gears a bit one of one of the things that i think sort of music streaming platforms have done is um expand i guess the middle class of musicians because I guess back in the day, uh, I mean, and still to an extent, there's a tiny amount of people making all of the money. But, um, you know, hearing some of the stats that your team was sharing, it sounds like, you know, there are loads more people that now make a living yeah. through Spotify streaming than there were in the past. But at the same time, there are tens of millions of people that can now post their music on Spotify, post their videos on YouTube, whatever the thing might be, who are not making any music at all. Yeah. So I wonder how do you think uh, how do how do you think the audiobook thing in particular will change the way that creators or authors write books and i guess the monetization side of that as well
1: yeah um i don't know and i i mean if if you would have asked me how the music industry would have changed uh, in some ways it changed beyond what i would have ever uh, believed and in some ways it changed less than what i ever believed as well um, you know, the reality is that uh, the way uh, the music industry still works is quite similar to how it's worked 15, 20 years ago. Yes, the, the the way how you measure success is through streams instead of sales today, but how you A&R something, how you market uh, something is still quite similar um, in many regards. And so I, I, I don't profess to know how it's going to change. I think uh, again, to the extent that it will change, my guess would be that uh, you're going to see a bigger diversity of authors being successful than the historical models. And it's quite simple from first principles, which means, you know, in in the music world, we went from if you had to pay a dollar for every song you essentially wanted to listen to, the barrier was quite high for you to try a new song that you from a new uh, artist that you didn't know anything about. Um, unless you had a massive amount of disposable income, of course. Um, And then piracy came along. And what ended up happening is people started sampling from lots of other places. And then Spotify really was an easier way than piracy. And then that slowly turned the industry around again to monetization. So I think what's going to happen now in the book industry that mostly work on the credit system that you talked about, which is very similar to buying a book, um, just flat out, um, the, the... you are purchasing books by authors uh, you know, either know or you have a high degree of trust. Mm. So you end up going on recommendations and other things. Um, Like you initially said, I think you're going to sample a lot more now just because the title seems interesting or because one person mentioned it where it would have taken five or six or seven before. So I think you're going to see a wider diversity of authors. And that in turn uh, may, of course, hopefully lead to more authors being signed. Because all of a sudden, um, the traditional norms of what constitutes, uh, what would work as a successful author or not will probably be changed. Now, the second question is the length of a book and all these things. If you'd asked me like, um, again, would I have imagined streaming, um, changing the length of a song um, down to something, the answer probably would have been yes. But in reality, There hasn't been an enormous amount, we went from about uh, 4.30 to today uh, 3.50, um, something like that. It's not changed to 30 second songs, it's still pretty much the, the same entity that it was before. It tends to be the longer intros does worse, but then again, You have a Taylor Swift that comes along and then the longer intros work again. I think so much is just around novelty. People want to hear what's familiar, but then, yeah, what's surprising too. And of course, if you're an established artist, you probably will get a a few more extra seconds before someone will judge your work. Mm. Um, So you can do something else, whereas the first time... um, You know, artists uh, and author probably got to hook you straight away because you might not give it as many pages. So I think it will impact. But I think this is the beautiful thing, right, Uh, of having uh, millions of people and having a platform um, that authors in the end are going to experiment with. We're going to see it. And I don't know. And I don't know what consumers will like and what will resonate. I don't know what authors will like, but I think it will be different.
0: Yeah. I can't wait to see how the, how the world changes. Um, my book is, is, is coming at end of December. And so I was just thinking, damn, the introduction is ev- even more important than what it was previously. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk, um, just to end, about productivity. So we were talking at the, the party yesterday, you mentioned you're a bit of a, a productivity enthusiast. And I'm curious because you know, you're know you you know this ridiculously high-flying CEO of a massive like publicly traded company. Your time is on a massive premium. So what are the strategies that you and your team use to help you squeeze the most out of your time? Or is is that even the way that you think about it?
1: Um, yeah, it, it it is how I think about it, because I think the most valuable thing you can invest is your time. Um, and so uh, on a personal basis, I can't say that I, I always succeed in doing it, but I, I do try to... Um, make sure that, um, you know, again, very simple things, but make sure I have um, start today in a perfect way. So one of, one of the great things that I try to do is I try to um, not start today by getting interrupted by phone calls, notifications, reading emails and all those things, but but just start today with the first half an hour, an hour, just um, slow reading, things that aren't urgent, but are just uh, thought provocative provocative i try to do exercise in the morning because it gives me more energy throughout the rest of the day even if it's just a walk Um, walk is actually my preferred thing Um, although i do more strength training these days because it's easier to fit into the schedule so i struggle like most people but i do try to my morning ritual is incredibly important to set my mental state in the right thing Um, and it is boosting my productivity that would be one thing the other thing is i don't schedule as much things as you think um, so you may think, uh, I'm a very busy person mm. uh, and I am, uh, I am in some ways, but in some ways I'm not. Most people are surprised if, if they get a glimpse at my calendar because it's quite empty. There are weeks when I have a lot to do, um, like, uh, this week, um, I'm sort of back to back to back, but most of my weeks are, um, pretty empty. I usually have one or two things in during the day and the rest of the time, um, is time off. And I think psychologically that messes with a lot of people because they're like, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm not very productive. But I think you have to, the, the biggest learning I've had, I used to, back in the day, I used to model myself on other people that were successful and that I looked up to and that I thought did very great things. So uh, again, I'll, I'll use an example. Uh, my board member, Shishir, he um, he published a lot of his productivity ritual, and he's kind of a, a geek and uh, on this stuff. So he he he, um, he publishes a mock up calendar of what his week looked like. Um, And I thought it was brilliant because he has many smart smart ideas on on like one-to-one meetings, one-to-many meetings, many-to-many meetings, and all these kind of like variants of these things and um, regular cadence for this, 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 and then occasional cadence for this and this. So it's just a great system. The problem was um, I copied it uh, from him straight off because I was like, this is brilliant. Mm. And the problem uh, that I ended up um, running into two weeks into it, I was was about to kill myself because it was like the worst schedule ever. I didn't feel any energy at all. Uh, I did a lot of things, but I wasn't very productive. And um, my realization through that process is you have to do things. You have to understand your own psychology. uh, uh, And you have to understand where you can add the most amount of leverage. And we are all different. Some people get a lot of energy from meeting people. Uh, some people are great delegators um, and get their done uh, most of their work done because they're able to get other people to do the majority of the work. Uh, and they're kind of just the spider kind of coordinating all of those things. Some people are more creative and they they, um, they are better off when you have two or three or four people. Um, hours of blocked out time and they need that in order to produce high quality work so they don't do a lot but they do fewer things of higher quality and i think um, you have to think about it um, as an individual like both what your own psychology is so that you can get the maximum out of yourself but you also have to think about the surrounding um, so I get that you may not be able to take four hours off, even if it's your psychology, if you work a nine to five job and you have a boss who tells you to show up for various meetings, totally understand that. But to the extent that you can be true to your psychology, I think you'll, you'll, you'll make, um, increase massive amounts of productivity gains, but we think we have to adhere to this uh, schedule. So let's translate that back now to me, uh, to the question you asked, but I felt like I had to, um, Explain a little bit more about mm. more more of my philosophy to productivity first. Um, so in my case, I, I don't have a lot of things um, blocked out. Not because um, um, not not because I look at it as I'm the creative person or I'm that I I would actually say I'm a hybrid, and I think most people are a hybrid of both. Um, But the most important thing for me is to be able to roam free to the highest uh, and most important area. And what I find is that by pre-booking that in advance, I set up myself for failure so that I don't have enough time for the things that truly end up in this kind of important and quite urgent things um, that the business needs to, to take care of. And I have a team that tends to deal with a lot of things for me but my biggest job and my biggest help is actually providing leverage for them. And the way to do that is, um, you know, many of them run the day-to-days and run lots of people and orgs and meetings and all that stuff. It is like they get a hairy problem. They don't know what to do about that problem. It may take two or three or four or five hours or even two weeks um, to sort that out. Um, That's where I do my best work. And that is sometimes negotiating deals that is sometimes get really in the weeds of a product strategy thing and like sort out uh, everything from how the button works to uh, whatever other things um, there may be. And sometimes uh, that's almost like being a coach, interviewing everyone on the team, understanding why the team isn't working so that I can go to that leader and suggest what we should be doing differently. But that's because I like playing that part And um, I feel useful in that part. And my psychology is one where uh, I tend to want to have a lot of free time in order to jump to the highest value action. Um, It's not so much that other leaders uh, couldn't have done it differently and probably made it work uh, very well for them as well.
0: Mm. That's great. Um, How do you think about the balance between, you you wanna do a lot of things versus the value of focusing on like one or two or three things? And I guess I'm curious because if we just think about Spotify, you know, you guys are doing great at music and you added podcasts and now you've added audiobooks. I know that you've started a couple of other companies as well. You've got the health one and like, uh, you know, there's there, there's one side of people that says focus on the single most important thing. But then there's like clearly sometimes more than one important thing. How How do you how do you? And juggle that balancing act.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. We have uh, most of my um, senior um, executives um, here in New York at this moment, and I was just giving a talk about precisely that. Um, and, and so <clears throat> one, one way I like to think about it is there's, um, there's uh, a framework called the Eisenhower matrix. Um, the basic gist is it's a two by two grid, uh, important, not important, urgent, not uh, urgent. And cognitively, I think we struggle with everything that's urgent. Mm. Um, both the urgent important and urgent not important and um, I think most people are pretty good at procrastinate on the things that's um not important um, and uh not urgent right like we, we're able to kind of not do those things. Um, I think we struggle in doing uh the important uh the sorry the urgent um not important and I think we struggle with the important and not urgent yeah um so those are the two quadrants to to focus more on um and and there it, it, it is really tricky but i think the most Im- uh, important thing i would i would give as advice is to if you keep your eyesight if you don't think in increments of weeks and months but you keep a balance between very long term goals and you keep a balance of very short term goals and go back and forth between those two and oscillate which is very hard mentally for people to do uh you're less likely to end up with a lot of urgent things right there should be very few urgent things uh, that you need to do Um, and many things you think is urgent isn't uh, that important right and you should be either delegating them or ultimately eliminating them but psychologically we're wired to want to deal with just the things that's urgent and if it's not urgent now even important things will struggle with the key is to then try to uh create a forcing mechanism where you actually schedule those types of things too. Um, so in, in my particular case, yes, there are a lot of things and everyone thinks everything is uh, really urgent. Uh, and this is where you have to be very hard to as a leader. I, I think the hardest, single hardest thing psychologically is we tend to wanna be liked uh, mm. by our other people. Um, but the hardest things to do as a leader is you have to have a very high bar for people both in terms of what they need to do but uh the high bar means it's um uh, unless it's a hell yeah it's no right on almost everything so i say no to so many very very good ideas Mm. but if they're not amazing i won't do it and every now and then uh, i find something that's amazing um like the healthcare thing and i'm like yeah uh I need to do this. Um, But there are only very, very few things that I can do myself. Um, The rest of them I have to find able, competent people to do.
0: Nice. Uh, Final question. How do you go about balancing the demands of being a CEO of a huge ass company with also being a husband and a father and like the personal side of things? Any tips?
1: (laughs) Yeah. uh, Look, uh, you should ask my my (laughs) wife about that one. no, but I, I, I think the most important thing again um, was, um, I, 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 I don't. Um, the the rally is, is that you can't be amazing in everything. Uh, that's the first thing you have to um, understand. And so, if if you're, um, uh, one one thing I do hate is when people talk about work life balance, um, because people talk about it as there being an equilibrium of some sort um, and the reality is I think you're going to be disappointed in life because my experience and been nothing is ever in balance uh, you're always going to be um, imbalanced in some shape or form so if you think about it as entropy instead you think about it as like uh, I don't um, work to live um, I do what I love to do so I have a lot of fun while doing it. I don't live to work, but it's the um, I, I really enjoy what I do too. So it doesn't feel like a huge drag. And if you're in a job where uh, whatever you're doing feels like a huge drag, you should really try. I, I can sympathize if you can't at this moment, but you should really try to create a plan where you get out of, um, uh, out of that job. And so that means in my case, work is very important uh, relative to that. Am I going to be the most present father at the same time if that means that it's time spent that is the the primary indicator? The reality is if I think so, and am, am I going to be the best husband if that means that I, time spent is that or the best brother or the best son by spending time? I, I I think I lose because I'm not going to be able to spend time because I do spend a disproportionate amount of time on my work. And so I've gotten to grip with that. Now, what I do try to do is I try to increase the quality of my interactions, even if I have limited time. And so a huge part of what I do with my executive assistants, weirdly enough, is I plan work less and I plan all the private parts more. So I try to increase the quality of that. Um, So as an example, one advice I ended up um, getting um, by by someone, um, I think it was maybe two years ago or something, uh, which was a wonderful thing, was that um, this was a father of um, um, a uh, number of different kids, and he, he was struggling with this thing about how do I provide attention to each child? And then he realized that the single best thing he could do was to I'm cutting to the chase because it's a longer story. But he he um he realized that the best thing he could do was to spend one weekend individually with each child. Um, and I think it ended up being five kids or something. So basically, ten percent of his weekends. Um, is that a good investment? Spending ten percent of your weekends individually with each child. And um, he thought it would be. And um, the the way he did do that is you have one year at the planet. And mm-hmm. so you figure out t- together, what do we both enjoy doing? And so with one of the children, it was fishing. So they went away fishing for a weekend. With another one, they like roller coasters. So they went to theme park and, and went like crazy. A third person um, may have been something else. And so I like that philosophy so much that I actually copied it to Elsewhere in Life too. I have my friend groups and I try to, with my friends, I don't get to see them as often as I would like to, but I try to make something memorable uh, with them. In my case, I like football a lot. So I tend to go uh, watch games with my friends. So we try to find memorable games where we can uh, do something fun like an El Clasico or I used to travel around to uh, the old firm and like pretty much all of the darby's uh, rivalry around uh, the world with one friend group. Uh, another friend group, uh, we like driving experiences. So we uh, go to different places and do uh, driving. Um, so it's it, it's been about sort of, finding out uh, those different things um, and I try to do the same with my daughters one one of them is more artsy the other one is more activity driven it likes to be outdoors and do um, lots of different things so just finding that um, thing that ticks with them spending that quality time being present in that moment not no interruptions no nothing um, I, I know a lot of parents and again um, um, there, there's nothing wrong with that either but But I I see it and there's this this tendency, you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, let's play. And then a word call comes in and you're trying to do text and you're you're not fully present either. So I I try to make sure at least, even if I can't spend as much time um, to increase the quality of each uh, interaction.
0: Amazing. Daniel, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Um, I know you don't like giving advice, but if you had to give one piece of advice for anyone who's gone to the end of this and who has been inspired by your story and by what you've built at Spotify, what would that be?
1: Oh wow! Uh, yeah, I, I don't like, like giving advice as you said. Um, well, um, I, I I guess um, my biggest advice is um, stay curious um, and uh, be focused on learning. Um, the biggest thing, be, biggest investment you could do is in yourself, and um, it's how you spend your time, and you should spend it. Um, this. Uh, appropriate amount of time in just learning things it is fun to do so you're going to have more social great social interactions with various people you may have not not found commonality and if you know something about them that you can relate to uh and i believe you're just going to have a richer life uh, overall so i think that's uh maybe cliche but i uh, think it's still so true and so few people do it so that would be my advice
0: brilliant daniel thank you so much thank you Bye-bye.